This is Corey Marie, writer and producer of the Who Killed My Mother podcast. Before you jump into this episode, I just want to remind you that if you visit whokilledmymother.com, you can join my newsletter. And when you do, I'll send you free bonus audio episodes, ebooks, and other goodies just for being a listener of the show. I promise it's really free, and I'll never do anything weird like sell your email for Starbucks points. So check it out if free stuff is your thing. But even if it's not, I want to thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In moments such as these, I can never manage to reassemble my mind or my heart. My hand, outstretched, is finding something I cannot yet see. From the poem The Battlefield, written by me, K.B. Marie. And this is the true story of who killed my mother. March 5th, 2021, 10.45 a.m. I compose a text message while my pug Charlie wanders up the sidewalk ahead of me, the retractable leash stretched to its end. He pauses to take a piss on the side of the maple tree when I hit send. There, it's done, I tell myself. I finally texted Detective Barnes, who I haven't heard from since he called to give me the preliminary results of my mother's autopsy eight months ago. I honestly don't expect to hear from him. If they were moving forward with my mother's case, I would have heard something by now. Same for the medical examiner, who hasn't returned any of my calls either. I wrote, I'm wondering if you ever spoke to the medical examiner about my follow-up questions or if you were able to find whether or not Joe took an insurance policy out on my mom prior to her death. And of course, I didn't forget the obligatory thanks in advance for your time. But as Charlie moves on to the next rose bush across the street, Detective Barnes surprises me, even if his response is cold. His text reads, Her cause of death was overdose, accidental. Not that I can be that easily quelled. As I cross the street to clear a path for the oncoming dog walker, a smiley lumberjack-looking guy with his flannel and beard and man bun, doing his best to wrangle a black lab, my thumbs are already flying across the keypad. I write, Yes, I know what the official cause of death is, but I don't believe it was accidental. There are many inconsistencies like him lying to you about her history of drug abuse, and there were no track marks or anything to suggest heroin use on her body. Not to mention he was legally responsible for her as her guardian because she was mentally unwell. If he really had found her collapsed, as he said in one version of his story, he didn't call 911. Instead, he let her die. I outlined all of my questions and concerns to the medical examiner and she said she was going to follow up with you. Did she? Did you check on the insurance policy or not? To which he replies, After speaking with the pathologist, she could not find anything that would suggest foul play. No mention of the insurance policy. Maybe the detective has to be careful about what he does and doesn't say, but I don't have those restrictions. I write, So he didn't move her body after finding her collapsed? There's no evidence that he moved her. Nothing in the lividity pattern or the way the fluid settled. The typing bubble appears. Yes, he did move her from the kitchen to the bedroom. He told me so that morning. 
A woman standing on her porch is watching me text like a mad person while my dog stomps around in her bushes. I'm sorry, I call out and tug Charlie along, but he sits down, refusing to be hurried. He is now king of the myrtle patch. I write, so he saw her overdosing on the floor, knew she was overdosing as he was with my aunt when she died the same way, and yet he chose not to alert the authorities to get help for her, even though he knew she was mentally unwell with dementia-like symptoms and could have been in a serious physical condition. Then before he can reply, I add, what qualifies as negligent homicide? Does the willful decision to let someone die and not get the medical attention when you are their state-appointed guardian, does that not qualify? I know I sound like a jerk. I feel a little sorry for him. After a full minute, he replies, let me speak to our DA office. But whether or not he speaks to the DA, I can't say. I don't hear from him again. April 7th, 2021, 4.58 p.m. A white dove lands in my yard. I'm on the sofa in my office writing, and I hear the familiar cooing. I look out the window, expecting to see the gray doves that have been filling my yard in twos, fours, and sometimes as many as six since my grandmother died. But it isn't a gray dove. It's white. I call Kim over to the window. She says, it looks more like a cream color to me. Be it white or cream colored, there's something about the bird that sends a shiver through me. I take a video of it tutting around my yard. I send it to Katie and a few other friends. I search the internet to find out what it might mean. Yes, I am one of those weirdos who thinks animals and nature are communicating with us at all times. If Google is to be believed, a white dove is supposed to represent love and peace or to serve as a messenger. Whatever its purpose, as I watch it alight on the birdbath and peck seed off the ground, a thrill runs through me. This moment feels significant, important. I won't know why until I go to sleep that night. I need to preface this by explaining that, like everyone else, I picked up some weird pandemic hobbies. While others were learning how to bake bread, improve their skincare routine, or buy an outstanding number of houseplants, I took up lucid dreaming. I had heard about lucid dreaming first in the context of Tibetan yogis. They do dream work as part of their spiritual practice, believing that it helps cultivate and expand their consciousness. If you have no idea what lucid dreaming is, I bet you've still done it. Most people experience it at least once or twice in their lives spontaneously. Lucid dreaming is when you wake up in your dream and realize you're dreaming. And while it happens for everyone once in a while, some people train their minds to experience lucidity on command. They learn how to induce lucid dreams so that they can explore their subconscious, talk to different parts of their minds, or, if they're a believer, God. Some even use dream work to gain resolution or closure over past trauma, and that's mostly what I was interested in. So I got some books, started doing the exercises, and by the time the white dove shows up, I'm far from mastery, but I am lucid dreaming regularly. And in my lucid dreams, I'm always looking for my mother. Once, a photo of her was sitting on a dresser in a dream, and I asked it, Are you my mom? Nothing. Is she okay? Nada. The photo didn't move, and I woke up disappointed. Another time, I gazed into a mirror and said, Mom, are you there? Mom, can you hear me? Mom! A shadow. An outline of her. Darkened and faded. Darkened and faded. But she didn't fully materialize in that dream either. It was like she couldn't quite reach me wherever she was. It went on like this for months. 
me dreaming, me searching, me never finding her. So imagine my surprise when on the very night the white dove visits me, I have my first vivid lucid dream with my mother. In the dream, I sit up in bed. It's my real bed, the one that's sitting in my bedroom right now. In this dream bed, my wife is sleeping beside me. Charlie is even curled up at my feet. And though this is very much how it is in real life, I know instantly that I'm dreaming because my bed isn't in my room, but it's in my grandmother's house, in the bedroom where I slept when I lived there as a child, in the bedroom where my mother had been raped as a child, the bedroom where Joe left her to die. And because there is no way I would willingly be at my grandmother's, let alone sleeping in this hell mouth of a bedroom, I instantly know that I'm dreaming and my lucidity is triggered. I climb from the bed and wander through the dark and quiet rooms of the house. Nothing moves. There's no one but me. I finally reach the den at the opposite end of the house. Joe had used it as his bedroom in the past, but I don't know if he still does. I peer into this room, and it's only darkness. Pitch black, endless darkness. And yet I stand there, on the top step, waiting for what? I'm not sure. Then... From the darkness, a voice says, Corey, is that you? And I know in a flash it's my mother, and I call out, Mom, Mom, tell me you're okay, please, before I wake up, just tell me that you're okay. Because sometimes, when you get excited in a lucid dream, you can wake yourself up. I had done this countless times already, so I'm so worried the same thing will happen now, that because I'm so excited to see her, I'll wake up before she can answer the question I've been carrying around for nine months since she died. I want to know that wherever she is, she isn't suffering, she isn't restless, she isn't full of regrets or upset about how she died. But above all, I need her to know that I love her, that I understand now. I understand everything that happened between us, that I blame her for nothing, and I love her more than ever. Fortunately, I don't wake up, and the dream goes on. Now the room is bathed in light. The two white recliners I remember my grandparents sitting in are side by side, facing an old television set, a huge kind that's more dresser than TV. My mother sits in one of the recliners. I'm okay, she assures me, and squeezes my hands. I'm okay. These aren't shallow reassurances. There is no forced cheerfulness. My mother's tone is that of someone who has been through it, and yet she believes that she's going to be all right, if not now, soon. The honesty of it unclenches something inside me, but already she's brushing her hands together. She's standing up. Enough about me. I came to talk about you. Me? I don't like where this dream is going. She takes my hands. You have to stop living your life as if you have something to prove, Corey. You have nothing to prove, not to me or anyone. Live your life, baby. Live it for you. And then she kisses me, hugs me, tells me that she loves me. And I wake up. I wake up crying. And for a long time, I don't stop. At first, I thought all the bawling that followed my dream for two or three days was simply a relief cry because I finally believed that my mom was okay. 
I had been very worried. I'd been searching for some kind of connection and reassurance for months, and I finally had it. Wherever she was, she was alright, or she would be. But the more I think about it, the more I wonder if I was also relieved, because my mother came back not to tell me that she was okay, but to tell me I'm okay. After everything, I am okay. After years and years of not believing it possible, I am really, truly okay. What I'm left with is all the steps I must take to convince myself that it's true. She wanted to give me permission to stop worrying, to stop fretting over my every move and hustling with my every breath. She wanted to pardon me from the responsibility of hunting Joe to the ends of the earth, for demanding justice with every minute and dime that I have, of spending the rest of my life trying to do right by her so that she would know someone on this godforsaken rock had loved her. Someone was willing to fight for her even if no one else would. She wants me to let go. She wants me to be free, happy, and she'll get her wish, mostly. I'm never going to stop speaking out about what happened or talking about how we should do more to help people like my mom. I do still feel the need to prove that she mattered, her and everyone like her, but I don't have to carry our story like a stone in my gut. My mother's story and death doesn't have to be a burden. I can do that because of how my mother died. If my mother had died quietly in her sleep in 15 or 20 years, I would never have been so compelled to hunt for this truth. Maybe by then, there would have been no one left to tell it to me either. David, number three, nor Shay are young, but also because I wouldn't have been so desperate for answers and understanding if I hadn't been drowning in confusion. For this reason alone, my mother's death, as heartbreaking as it is, it is a sort of gift. It was a chance to heal all the pain that I had carried around in my heart from growing up with a mother like mine, in a family like mine. It's like I've been walking for miles and miles my entire adult life with glass in my feet. The skin had healed over, but the steps were still sharp. Learning about my mom's past, understanding the detonation event that tore my family apart, it removed all of that glass. More importantly, it removed the beliefs I've always carried around it, that I wasn't enough. As a child, I wasn't enough to make her live straight and be well. And as an adult, I wasn't enough to save her. Now I know that none of that is true. It was never true. June 8th, 2021, 9.31 a.m. I've received several phone calls from my Uncle Joe's attorney spread out over the course of a week. I don't answer my phone when people call me, so all he could do was leave messages. As I step out onto my front porch and sit on the concrete stoop, I call him back. I'm not particularly interested in hearing what he has to say. I only want the calls to stop. Yes, thank you for getting back to me, he says in an upbeat tone. What can I do for you? I'm calling because I'm the representative of your grandmother's estate, and we have a buyer for the house. Joe is very motivated to sell it. I bet he is, I think. But the title company won't release the title unless you sign a quick claim deed. I frown. How can I quick claim a piece of property that I haven't inherited? Because I saw my grandmother's will. She clearly left everything to Joe. You have two years from the date of your grandmother's death to contest the will, so the company that holds the title on the house wants assurances that you won't do that before they allow your uncle to sell the house. 
Would you be willing to sign the quit claim? I've already decided not to contest the will. I have neither the money, time, nor mental energy for such an endeavor. And while I can't force the system to do right by my mother, I'll also be damned if I'm going to help my uncle cash in on the inheritance that he probably killed her for. No, I say. A beat of silence. May I ask why? The lawyer says. Because I believe he's responsible for my mother's death, and I won't be helping him in any way. I tell him, please don't ask me to, is what I don't say, because that voice is quieter and sadder than the one I'm presently using. Oh, the lawyer says, I'm so sorry I had no idea that was the situation. And here at least he is sympathetic and seems to respect my decision. He doesn't press me to sign anything, nor does he call me again trying to get me to comply with some demand. I hang up, but I'm left with this sick feeling... Now more than ever, I don't believe it's a coincidence that Joe waited until my mother was dead to begin dissolving my grandmother's estate. For four months after my mother died, they struggled for money. They couldn't pay the mortgage or their bills. They needed that money. And yet Joe held off until she was dead before starting the probate process? I don't know what all he stood to gain or what he thought he stood to gain. Maybe he was worried she would contest the will or... Maybe he thought the state would seize her half and put it in a trust for her before institutionalizing her. Or maybe he knew he wanted to sell and leave that house and he didn't want to take her with him. Whatever his reasoning, it feels like he planned this. If he did, it's worked out pretty well for him. Apart from those measly three weeks in jail between the arrest and the court date, he has seen no consequences for anything he's done. Joe is getting away with it. Or so I thought. August 5th, 2021, 12.29 p.m. I'm editing, trying to decide whether or not the sentence I've written can be read and actually understood by another human being when my phone rings. It's a Nashville number. I can't tell at first glance if it might be Joe or his attorney again, but those are the only two people who would call me from Nashville anymore. I let it go to voicemail, and I continue on with the editing as if nothing has happened. But in fact, my heart is pounding. My mind is trying to talk me down, back into sanity. Easy now, whatever he wants, it can wait. No need to stop what you're doing just to return a call. It's probably just more bullshit. A few more minutes won't change that. I calmly finish the chapter, close my computer, and then listen to the voicemail. Hello, Corey. This is Joe's attorney. We spoke a couple of months ago about the estate of your grandmother. I have some news to pass along to you, and it's very urgent. So if you could give me a call back, I'd really appreciate it. You can reach me anytime at 615. I press the little phone icon and listen to the slow trill in my ear. A man answers. Hi, this is Corey, I say by way of hello. Yes, thank you for getting back to me, he says. Then his throat clicks. I called to tell you, well, I'm, I'm sorry to say, your uncle is dead. Silence through the line. A stone is dropped into a dark lake. I'm sorry, I say. Yes, your uncle was found dead in your grandmother's house, either yesterday or the day before. I thought you should know. 
Yesterday? Yesterday would have been Joe's fifty-third birthday, if he'd been alive to see it. I'm trying to pull air into my lungs while my mind, blown apart, races in ten directions at once. Can I... can I ask what happened? I say, because I haven't forgotten my mother's hushed account of the battered face and bruises, of drug deals gone wrong. Was he murdered? Was it a drug deal gone wrong? It looks like an overdose, the lawyer said. He'd been in jail for the last six months for a drug charge. On Monday, he got out on bail and went back to the house. Someone who'd been checking on the place found him, collapsed in the floor. Collapsed in the floor, just the way my mother had been found. And six months in jail before that? I had no idea. I thank the attorney for letting me know and assure him that I'll reach out to Joe's son so that they can continue on with the estate. Good, I think. Let it go to his kids. Joe's boys had lived longer and suffered more in that house than I did. It should go to them. I get on my computer and search for Joe's latest drug charge. It takes me a while to find it because it isn't in Davidson County. It was in Marshall. What were you doing down there? I wonder. Whatever it was, Joe was picked up by Tennessee State Patrol on January 15th, 2021. All this time, I thought he was in that house, enjoying the prospects of a fat payday and a promising new life. But no, he had been locked up. And his mugshot? It makes my heart hurt. His dark eyes are small and sunken, set back in a scrunched face. He doesn't look like a villain. Certainly not like the man I've imagined coming to my house a hundred times, hiding behind my shower curtain or under my bed until I'm asleep, only to emerge from the darkness and wrap his hands around my throat. No, certainly not the nightmare I've been imagining. He looks more like someone that I would see on the corner downtown, someone who would ask me for spare change, someone sleeping rough, with a deep gash in his forehead, and lips that turn downward in a permanent frown, not to mention Marshall County is in the opposite direction of my house. As I look at those sunken eyes, I consider all that I wished for in the last 13 months since my mother died. How many times I thought, he's getting away with it. Why? And the anger that followed, threatening to swallow me whole and burn me alive from the inside out. In those moments... I had wanted Joe to spend the rest of his life in jail. I had hoped Joe would never see a penny from that estate. And more than once, when I'd been convinced that he'd left my mother on the floor to choke and gasp and wheeze out the last moments of her life, abandoned, I'd wished the same death on him, that he would die alone, miserable, without a soul in the world to pull him back from the brink. I wished for all of that. And then he goes to jail for the last six and a half months of his life, and dies before the estate is even out of probate, and he was found on the floor, just as my mother was? Maybe we'll even find fentanyl in his blood. Be careful what you wish for. I take a long weekend off to think about all of this, not just to figure out how I feel about Joe's death, but also to consider larger, more complex questions. Was this justice? A coincidence? Did dare I say it, God get involved? Or a god? An angel? A flying spaghetti monster? And if so, what are the implications for everything I believe? Had Joe wanted to die? Had his loneliness or guilt grown to such an unbearable size after 13 months on his own 
but he no longer wanted to be in the world? Or was it an accident? Had his tolerance for heroin dropped while he was in jail, and as soon as he was out, he simply took more than his body could handle? How strange it is to find myself asking the same questions about Joe's death that I had asked when my mother died. And my feelings, my God, my feelings. What is this? I ask over and over again. What is this I'm feeling? There's the relief, sure. The sadness and pity. Also an entertaining panic. What will I do now instead of worrying about him? But aside from all of that, there's something else. Something ineffable. And as the tears stream down my face, I try to pin it in place, bring it to light, name it. It feels like both a death and a birth unfolding at once. One part collapsing, another expanding. It feels like I'm slowly opening my hand to let go of something that I really want to hold on to. It feels like courage, the heart dilating as I take a step off the sunlit path. It feels like I'm looking my worst enemy in the eyes and I'm seeing only myself, stripped of all the blessings that make my life beautiful. I'm here, I'm safe, I'm loved, and I'm so grateful. Forgiveness, I realize. This is what forgiveness feels like. Like a heart that's been broken open, and yet is still so happy to be alive. I stand at the dining room window, drinking a cup of tea. I watch the bees dance amongst the sunflowers. The butterflies float above the roses. And for weeks, there has been a monarch here. And when I see it flash in the sunlight, I always think of my mother, partly because of the monarch tattoo that she had on her hip, but also because butterflies are supposed to be the dead, waving a little hello to the ones they've left behind. Today, there are two monarchs. They glide past the window, past the roses, and out over the yard. They twirl around each other, a playful game of tag that soars high, then dips low. I watch them until they flutter out of sight, disappearing beneath the branches of my neighbor's weeping cherry tree. They've gone on. They have other things to do, places to be. And that leaves me, alone with this tricky business of living, me with a lifetime of opportunities to embrace peace, to find happiness and joy, after so much sadness, a chance to move forward, unburdened by my past. It's more than a little scary, I will admit, all of this possibility, and the idea that I can have something so different than what I'd been given at first, and the idea that I don't need to rely on my fear anymore, or any of this anxiety, I can hardly imagine what shape these tools might take in a new life. But I want to try something else. I have to try. And if I ever doubt myself, start to believe that a liberated life is impossible after so much loss, in the moments where everything inside me wants to turn back to what I've always known, I'll just have to remember what my mother told me. Baby, you've got this. This episode of Who Killed My Mother was written and produced by me, Corey Marie. The music was also written and produced by me. 
If you enjoy my storytelling, good news, there's a lot more of it out in the world. I have over 20 published books, novels, illustrated poetry collections, and even this show is available as a memoir to be enjoyed by yourself or by that friend who doesn't listen to podcasts. You can learn more about my work and all that I do by visiting whokilledmymother.com. On the site, you can get free bonus audio episodes and ebooks when you sign up for my newsletter. If you want to do more, you can also support me on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Corey Marie. For just a few bucks a month, you get early access to my soon-to-be-release content, as well as exclusive content that I won't publish anywhere else. Not to mention that your support lets me know that you enjoy what I do and want it to continue. And if you can't offer financial support, that is okay. There is still a lot you can do. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review of the show, or recommend the show to your friends. And I would be so grateful if you did. And as always, thank you for listening.